ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Everyone thinks I had a storybook career, that I just sprang into Disney Channel stardom overnight, made millions, and lived happily ever after. Spoiler alert, I didn't. There were countless failures along the way, and there still are. How I deal with that struggle and how I pivot when failure creeps in is what allows me to keep going, keep learning, and keep striving for balance. The Vulnerable Podcast is an invitation to hang out every week with me, Christy Carlson Romano, as I invite friends, celebrities, and experts for in-depth conversations discussing the good, the complicated, the beauty of being human, and what it means to be vulnerable. Join me every Tuesday as we navigate the ups and downs of my guests' paths to success. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Thanks for downloading this week's episode of the Attacking Scrum podcast. Another cracker for you this week, even though none of the Welsh sides have been in action. And I'm delighted to say that I was joined by Justin George, a regular contributor to the show and top journalist, to chat about well, a whole host of topics ranging from Amazon Prime potentially picking up uh, the broadcast rights for the Autumn Internationals. And we also talk about a couple of very talented youngsters uh, who are applying their trade at Gloucester in the form of Luis Rees-Samet and Stephen Varney. So we talk about those. Interesting to chat about uh, the Owen Farrell tackle, which although not necessarily linked with uh, with Welsh rugby, uh, was a, a really interesting thing to get stuck into from uh, from a perspective of, uh, of the way it was covered. And of course, uh, we have to talk about the Heineken Cup format for next year, which has quite simply blown my mind with how complicated it is. So if you're looking for a clear explanation on it, this is not the place. But if you're looking to hear someone vent their frustrations about how needlessly complicated it is, then this is the place for you. Uh, A quick thanks to our sponsors before we get underway. That is, of course, So Coffee Trades. If you want to get some fantastic coffee, including really, really great instant coffee, you can do that at socoffeetrades.co.uk. So do that and stick this podcast on. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of the Attacking Scrum podcast. There may have been none of the Welsh regions in action this weekend, but no shortage of talking points from across the world of rugby, both Wales and beyond. And joining me to have a look at all of these things, uh, and uh, and I'm sure had plenty of insight and no shortage of melancholy. It's Yestin George. How are you doing, Yestin? Happy as Larry. Thanks, Jed. <laughs> Yeah, the tone really gave that gave that one away. Um, how uh, how's your weekend been? Having chatted to you over WhatsApp, it sounded like there's been an awful lot of sport viewing uh, during this time. Yeah, I mean, I have to say my primary uh, focus at the moment is the Tour de France. Uh, I'm not one of those, uh, uh, you know, uh, just because Geraint's in it, mm. uh, you know, that I'll watch it. It's um, I find it compelling. I have done since 1986. I love Have it. I, I'm, I, not, 
yeah, I'm not really even that good on uh, the Vuelta or the Giro d'Italia. It's just all about the Tour de France for me. I was a relatively late convert. I would say post Wiggins. Um, yeah, so the 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 year Wiggins won it was the year I really got into it. But thereafter, did my usual thing of getting so completely obsessed that I've read book after book about the Tour de France, and it's one of those things that like the doping and stuff i know it's, it sounds ridiculous but it it adds to the history of it and i'm not you know i'm not condoning any of it but it just means there are so many of these these checkered chapters within the the history of the sport that uh, yeah we should we should probably continue this conversation off air or or at the very least uh start a cycling uh, a cycling podcast maybe who knows maybe yeah it would be I'd be even less informed than I am in rugby <laughs> terms and even far less qualified, even though I do I try to cycle as much as I can. But, um, you know, it's just ridiculous. The, the, you know, it started with Stephen Roach with me in the 1980s, who yeah. was this wonderful Irish, you know, emerged from the mist, put him, put him in straight in an ambulance take him to hospital get him back on his bike for first thing next morning and he wins the Tour de France you know it's like god knows what was going on behind closed doors in those in those days but there we are I know well this is it these these are those fantastic stories that uh that yeah I think if you if you get it and it took me a long time to get it having watched sport as a kid relentlessly it took me a certain amount of time to get it and then it all clicked and I went, all right, I, I fully understand why people are so into this sport now and particularly the tour. I agree, you know, I, I try and keep up with the, the Vuelta and the Giro and stuff, but there is just something incredible about the tour. I went out, my, my wife um, booked a holiday to France for us, which was my 30th birthday and we went out there to, this was, yeah, five years ago and, and watched, um, and watched the start of a stage and it's just, it's just fascinating and it's, it's astonishing the, the lunacy with which French fans follow it. It was just, yeah, it was absolutely compelling. But anyway, we must talk about rugby because that's what, that's what our listeners will be here for if they haven't switched off uh, by now. But rest assured, we, you've, um, you've been keeping up to date, particularly with, uh, with the English Premiership. And I'm keen to chat to you about a couple of uh, young Welsh bucks that, uh, that I think we should start with. And they were involved in the Gloucester game. Lewis Rees-Samit, who, of course, we've spoken about a number of times on this podcast, but also Stephen Varney, who is the, uh, the scrum half, who has been capped by Italy under-20s, but still, I believe, remains available for selection for Wales. Let's start with, uh, let's start with Lewis Rees-Samit, though, on the score sheet again. Another impressive performance? Yeah, he came on um, without, his, uh, un- without his traditional white... Uh, undershirt so he looked kind of tanned and even more muscular and handsome than he than normal he and he didn't he didn't kind of look like a snotty nosed kid and he played at 15 uh and just had an saw the outside shoulder of uh of the opposition's 13 and just ran, ran past it and scored a try without anybody laying a hand on him it was quite impressive uh he 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 was uh 50-50 maybe in terms of high balls, but there was some there was some uh, there was some instances where he was in the middle of traffic. But clearly, the if Gloucester are going okay, you can go you can go on um, you know as an really as a kind of emergency sub. But you go mm. on at fifteen. They ended up with uh, with all sorts of injuries in the backs. Uh, 
they must trust him as a his uh, nous and his uh, footballing ability. Otherwise, that you know that you know what it's like. There are wingers who can play 15, and there are wingers who definitely cannot play 15. You've just got to stick them on the wing. And uh, certainly, they, they for somebody so young, it was quite exciting to see Gloucester trusting him with that level of responsibility. Well, it's very interesting, and given the fact that he's, you know, that he's what 19 years old, there's. Uh, I, I mean, the, the the problem is right. Is I think that the tendency is that the younger you are, the the, and the more composed you look, the more the hype. I mean, if you go back to, you know, you go back to George North at this age and scored a brace on his debut against South Africa. And really it was, you know, it was onwards and upwards thereafter. And, you know, we, we kind of end up talking about George almost as like a, you know, as a, as a thing of the past now, hang, you know, just pining for the, the days of, uh, of 2013. So I don't know, that's, that's the only thing holding me back about getting super excited about this kid is just the fact that, um, when you know when you look at when you look at George North and how excited how excited we were about him and the and the fact that it's um that sounds like he's not achieved you know he's achieved so much George North but I just kind of feel like I almost can't um in true pessimistic Welsh fan sense I can't get excited about it um just because I feel like the, the pressure and the expectation is 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 too big for the lad I would agree uh in only if it was if he was playing uh pro 14 mm. i think th- there's a big difference i genuinely do the try he scored in midweek was a cracker as well that was amazing he, you know the g- gassed everybody on the outside uh and showed just eminent confidence i i think if he was uh if he was straight out of say the under 20s and he was mm. just started playing for the ospreys and he was making a sh- making a show it would be it, it, i think it's it's difficult not to get overexcited in those circumstances, but I think it just—it's the Josh Adams thing, isn't it? Mm. That we Josh Adams was banging on the door for a season before he got selected, and then guess what? He—he's arguably in in the Lions team for next year. He certainly—he might not be the you know, might not be among the best half a dozen wingers in the world, but he's—he's he's certainly. He's certainly a world-class winger, uh, and you could say that it took us quite a while to get get that um, get get that message through mm. because he was playing at Worcester, and I think that this is the question that we have to ask ourselves: is that players who are Welsh qualified, who are young, and who are playing in in England? Uh, I think we have to accept that they're playing it to a higher standard than oh, they do they if are. they play uh, Pro 14. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there are several players who are obviously... I think, I think it is worth getting excited about. I genuinely do. Yeah, um, I, I mean, for all the, uh, you know, for all the build-up of me saying you, uh, you know, you do, the, you do the melancholy around here, I mean, I'm, I'm, known for, I'm known for it myself. And to be honest, looking at it with... You know, with with objective eyes, every time that I've seen him, and I, I I'd say I didn't watch the game this weekend, but what I have seen of him is just electrifyingly exciting. And the the simple numbers, you don't score that many tries unless there is something about you. And his pace is astonishing. It's you know, it's proper, it's proper burning, you know, burning defenders for fun type pace. And that's something that that is 
that is well worth getting excited about. I think he has to be, you know, he has to be capped this autumn. I, I'm, I was a little bit disappointed that he didn't get a, that he didn't get a, a run out against Italy just to, um, just to cap him. You know, I know that sounds ridiculous because you've got to earn your cap and, and everything like that. And Pivak would have seen much more of him in training than, um, than I certainly would have. But I just felt like get him, get him that cap, get him interested. Whether you play him thereafter or not, I felt like just getting him off the mark would have been a would have been a really, a really good thing to do. And the ex, kind of almost the experience take away that edge of of winning your first cap by doing it against Italy just because he's so young, and and you know there, there's no danger of him. There's no danger of him ever playing for England. He said he he said as much, even though he's even though he's uh, qualified, I believe, and. It's just, you know, he's just not going to do it. He's like, no, I, I'm, I'm going to play for Wales. So I'm pretty certain it will happen in the autumn. But, yeah, I, you know, as much as I'm being a pessimist, I'd have probably given him a cap by now. That's why I'm not in charge of the Wales side. I'm just ridiculous, ridiculous it's gut so reaction like this. Yeah, there's a couple of things on that one. One is I don't mind the fact he hasn't been capped because it really winds up Austin Healy, who went into yet another... Uh, uh, kind of, I, And I find Healy uh, quite funny rather than... Uh, annoying uh, uh, but I, I was amused by him going on and on about the fact that he's still qualified for England on a national broadcaster uh, albeit not the BBC but on BT he's just rambling on about we can, he's still not technically ineligible to play for England yeah. uh, so that's quite amusing uh, because he's clearly stated his case hasn't he on social media before now uh, and, and also I, I don't know. The, there's something I, I I think that it's like um Nico Williams in mm. football. He he was, I think, rushed into the Welsh squad uh because they were sniffing England yeah. was sniffing around him. It feels that way. I mean I, I might I could I have no evidence to prove that, but I, that's my gut feeling. Yeah, I I think I think his interview post game against Finland would uh would imply as much. And then he he scored the winning goal this afternoon in his first full start. So, yeah, it's it's like give a give a kid a chance. Uh, they mm. certainly gave George a chance, uh, and I don't. I think that uh, I think there's nothing in international rugby that would make uh, Louis Rees Zamet look uh, look out of his depth in terms. You know, he's he's playing in a very very high standard uh to a high standard at a very at a, you know in a very good league i mean yeah. stephen varney yesterday was man of the match this he, is a really this is a really interesting one because yeah, if, we're, he, if, we're, he, if we're talking about a need for a need for certain positions there is a lot of depth in in the back three in wales at the moment there is and i know there's there's some great scrum halves but with thomas williams being injured there is an opening for a berth here you t- surely, if you're Wayne Pivak, you've got to be tempted. You couldn't let him go. You could not. The, the professional element, the cynical element, could not let him go and play for Italy. Surely, this is where this is where we get. Uh, you know, one week it's Rodri Williams, and then the next week it's somebody else. That's again why we're not as slick as for Wales. But I, I, he was he was really really impressive yesterday. And he, what I loved was also his kicking game was mm. superb, but not not at the expense of any of the other parts of his game. He was really, really good, and he, his box kicking was great. He hit, he kicks the ball 
quicker and sharper than any of our uh, players. You know, it, the 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 foot uh, hits the ball really quickly as soon as he picks it up, rather like than that, yeah. that kind of oh, let's see, you know, let's let's kind of stick my arm out and then you know sling it up in the air. He was he was really good, really really good. Uh, so I'd love to see him. Uh, I'd love to see him in in the squad, and I certainly. It's a bit like they they put Costello in the training squad, didn't they, mm. last year? And that was obviously with intent because he'd had such a fantastic uh, under twenties, and he was in you know in the form of his life. Why not, at, at the very least, put him in a, in a training squad situation, call him up, and get him in there? I think you've just got to, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you, you're right. Obviously, last week I came out and said that Kieran Hardy definitely deserves that deserves that spot. And, and I, you know, I, I probably wouldn't disagree with that. But at the same time, again, having only seen a handful of, uh, you know, a handful of um, appearances from Stephen Varney, I'm going based on the fact that he's putting in man-of-the-match performances for Gloucester in a league that is of, you know, of much higher standard than um, than the pro 14 and based on what you know based on what you're saying as well that we, you know there's there is a player with the right ability if all of that is the case the sheer professionalism has to say we have to give him one cap so that he cannot play for italy that you, you just could you know you just couldn't forgive yourself if he went on to be a world beater playing for italy you know or, or won 70 caps for italy even and looking at him, thinking, well, we could have had him. And I know this sounds this sounds cruel, but even if he has one game for Wales and never plays again, you, you can't you can't take that risk. It's, um, I mean, I, 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 they say that Harry Randall's well speaking, and uh, you know, and that's another one that another player, obviously, played for England in the twenties, and as you know, it was English born, uh, and and you think. Uh, you know he's obviously playing really mm. well as well, but he does look still obviously quite lightweight, and he does look really sharp. But uh, uh, you know, again, you just look at these players and you think that 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 kind of West Country heartbury, mm. th- this kind of way of doing things that the English clubs. Uh, I always like to tease my fellow members at Hove RFC. And say to them, well, you only the problem you've got is that you only pick from six schools in England, and you just and that, that that's why you've got the widest player base in the world, but you only pick from half a dozen privileged schools. Uh, and obviously, they they get people to get um, you know they sneak people in left, right, and centre on various scholarships to get them in there. But you think it, 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 we can't compete with that? Um, with that system by any means and we struggle with obviously we're going to we struggle against the idea of having privately educated kids Mm. who are able to dedicate time and have the resources to go to 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 play rugby and to go to these schools is is a very appealing one ever since the days of gareth edwards and millfield but we are and we we have to play it to our advantage we can't compete in that sort of we you know we can't compete on that level but we can but what we can do is be pretty sussed and as the well i i applaud the 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 wiu really for having the sus to 
bring people back uh, and to and to you know they quite successfully brought players like Costello back. This and, is this, this is exactly the point. Others. This is exactly the point because I think actually they have found a way. To, to, to their credit of competing because the one you know we know we can't compete in terms of finances can't compete in terms of uh in terms of the the education system that you've just described there but the way the one thing that you can have that is of, of significant impact when it comes to players making their their decisions as to who they're going to play for and that's the and that's the the kind of the the lure of the of the welsh jersey yeah um, and and also i think that uh, in again, if we go back to football, Oshan Roberts was mm. instrumental in bringing young players through to the current Welsh setup, and that was as much to do with creating a culture as it was to do yeah. with with football tactics. I think, and so you also then you recognise the fact that outreach is really really important, mm. and also the recognition that. Wales has a, a sort of cultural advantage in a way in that uh, people like Reece Samit wouldn't make a statement unless if if it was just a case of what's my what what's what's it all about in terms of my career. They're not making a career decision. They're making a decision based on culture and on on nationhood and on family and on tradition and all those things so when people are saying you know we've got to get over ourselves and stop being so romantic actually mm. the romance is still a very is a an inextricable part of the whole operation really well yeah i, I think i think you might well be right on that the but you know the, it, i think it's coupled with a degree of cynicism and uh and being clinically professional on this and i think that you know the that exiles operation is kind of something that something that is, is absolutely necessary. You know, I think you, you have to be aware of Welsh qualified talent playing particularly within England. And the fact that England has a massive player base, you know, you've being that being their nearest neighbours does give the opportunity to to benefit from that to a certain degree. As we've as we've seen with football, and I'm not saying you know you you cap people willy-nilly just you know just as a result of um, any half decent player who might have a you know a Welsh grandmother, but if there is a desire for them to to want to play for Wales, they're good enough to do it. Then I think you know we we have to look at that, and we you know we have seen it, and it's it's a it's a really interesting one. But we're never going to have that that depth of player base that England has, so we have to be as clever as possible. And also the the clubs in in Wales have got huge amounts of problems, but if we're able to to strengthen them with players who have been, have come back to Wales with the the ambition of, of playing for the national side, then for me, I think that can only be a good thing. I'm I've been a, a big convert of the the sixty cap law, Gatlin's law, whatever you want to call it, because I think this latest incarnation that they've been running since the whole week's web fiasco has worked. Yeah, I agree. I think if you look at but it does emphasize then the need to cap players, like you said. I mean, I don't think you 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 sound a little bit apologetic about the idea of you know chucking a, a a cap towards. I'm not saying Tommy Raffles in the next Welsh team, but 
it, it, they've got to be they've got to be fairly pragmatic about these things mm. otherwise the next contract will be signed and then they won't be eligible but you know or they'll get in there or thereabouts and there are several players i mean there was a lot of talk about callum sheedy last year wasn't mm. there and, and that that's another player that uh, you know we are we're still not entirely happy with the way that we've got several tens who are out of action on you know haven't played for a while there are all sorts of players you know um you know it's uh yeah there's there's just loads there's um you know uh, Johan Lloyd and players mm-hmm. like that as well but it's, it's it's massive you know that if there's an opportunity to bring them uh, to bring them back to Wales for the club game and for the for the national you know if they imagine letting one of these players slip through the net imagine letting a Johan Lloyd play for England just you know just think how gut-wrenchingly awful that would be and I I'll can't you, bear the thought I can't bear <laughs> the thought of Harry Randall if he does speak Welsh and he that if he would play for England, I can't bear that thought. There's one thing being Dewey Morris or Stuart Barnes, or you know, or, uh, but it was bad enough with when Callard. Ross Moriarty was playing. But yeah, or Callard, it was bad enough when Moriarty was playing for the under twenties, and you know, but to have a Welsh speaker playing for England would be insane. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Again, I I, I can only think that. These things again. I haven't seen enough of Harry Randall to say whether he's whether he's good enough or not. But no. I, if I was, and we, you know, we're what uh, twenty five minutes into this week's show, and I've already given you ten reasons as to why I shouldn't be in charge of the Welsh Rugby Union. But if I was, I would very much be be looking to to have a wider training squad that has the likes of these players in there, and you give them a taste of it, and you say, you know, you come down to the Vale of Morgan and you get a taste of what it's of what it's like. You know, we've got our eye on you. You're a young, talented player. You're playing well, and we we want you to we want you to play for Wales. Make that pathway clear. You know, make it look obvious. It's it's that they're wanted. But I mean, yeah. So Harry Randall has played age grade for for England, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, he played under twenties. Oh, I mean, yeah. And and like you say, I always felt like Moriarty would see sense, and uh, and obviously he did. And he gives he gives absolutely everything for. For Wales, I just think, yeah, it, it would be yeah, un, unthinkable to see some of these players pulling on a, a full England jersey. So, uh, you know, that, that to me, that's why this exiles thing is important. You've got, you got to get the arm around the shoulder. And I think particularly, you know, when you had a figurehead like Gatland in charge, it's a bit different for Pivak because he's got, you know, he's got um, lots of things to be worried about anyway. But, you know, he's, he seems in, in that first squad he named for the Six Nations, I think this is this is this is part of the game plan, right? Who knew Who knew Will Rollins had? A, yeah. a, I, I certainly didn't. And I, I, Will, I think Will Griff play, John is another one. Will Griff John. I mean, at least the clue was in the name with Will Griff John. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I think there's a lot of you know a lot of things like that that you know it's brought uh, Tompkins likewise. You know, just you've got to you've got to be clever and uh, and to a certain degree cynical about this. But you know. Handing out caps willy nilly is one thing, but certainly getting him in the getting him in the training squad and saying, "Look, come on, come down, and train with the boys. Let's see if you're good enough to play international rugby." Because you know we think you've got potential. Let's let's put it to the test over a few training sessions and just giving them that taste. And uh, you know, I, I think you, you've kind of you've got to be um, you know, you've got to be kind of behaving in that way. So yeah, and I'll tell you one thing, Justin. This is a seamless segue, um, which we don't get many of on this show. 
But if there ever is a time to be handing out caps, I think it's going to be this autumn. And the other big news story from this week is that uh, Amazon Prime seem to be, according to uh, the Daily Mail at least, the front runners to secure the television or the broadcast rights for what genuinely does seem to be called the eight nations um which i've i've voiced my concerns about already but yeah it looks as though uh, amazon prime might be the front runners for that um have you got any initial thoughts with regards to this obviously it's, uh, no, I'm, it's I'm, just gonna, to I'm just gonna i'm just gonna go and hide under my desk now and allow you to go off on a rant for about 15 minutes is that right <laughs> yeah um, I, I honestly I, I, my 20 year old son who watches who's foaming at the mouth about the north versus south game of the weekend who watches everything on you know every bit of rugby he can manage to watch on youtube if he's playing catch-up or anything just went where, where, when are these games what what's happening and it's like oh, yeah well, this this might this might surprise you then, because uh, right, we're putting and this is a big caveat, but putting to side to one side Amazon's uh, uh, tax shenanigans, uh, or rather the government's lack of ability to catch up with Amazon's uh, yeah, tax arrangement. It's the government's fault. It's not Amazon well, it going to really, take yeah. the piss. End of story. Every yeah. company is going to take the piss unless they're they're told not to. Well, exactly. Uh, but putting that to one side. This could be an opportunity. Um, now, I think there, there is one, it's one thing burying the, the Welsh Domestic League or the, the league that the Welsh side's playing on Premier Sports because it's a niche channel. It's a subscription thing on top of Sky. I think it's only ever going to be, if you think about like the, you know, the, the potential for people to, who like rugby as a bit of a pyramid, right? When it comes to the Pro 14, it's only going to be the very narrow top of that pyramid who subscribe to Premier Sports because you have that that interest in 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 those clubs. Now, with something like Amazon Prime, it has such a wide user base that I do think there is an opportunity to um, to to bring rugby to a new audience with this. And it's it's really tough for you know for for some you know someone who's watched rugby on on BBC all their lives, and that would still be my preferred route. Um, it's a really bitter pill to swallow, but there could be a real opportunity to get a younger generation who are spending much more time on platforms like Netflix and, and Amazon Prime and Twitch and the likes and, and YouTube and these kind of places and spending much more time on there. This could be the opportunity to monetize the game, which is in desperate need of cash right now, and also open the doors to a, to a younger audience and have the the marketing clout that Amazon has behind it, because if they secure the rights for this, they're not going to be messing around with the, you know, the forty-five quid of marketing spend that that Premier Sports had. This is going to be this will be everywhere. If they've got, you know, if they've got the the equivalent of the Auto Internationals, in a way, I think there's the, there is an opportunity to to make it much much bigger because you've got a serious ruthless corporate giant behind it and and prepared to back it. Well, they've certainly they certainly go for it, don't they? When they do, when they mm. do these things, Prime, they do make a very obvious. They make it very very clear on the homepage of Prime for a start. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a, it'd be the first time that you've seen rugby players on the front, you know, on the front page yeah. of your 
of Amazon Prime, you know, they're going hell for leather with the, the US Open tennis at the moment. It's not, you don't, they're not hiding it away. Uh, even, uh, yeah, I would, I, I, I completely understand how people would be so annoyed who were maybe BT subscribers, for instance, and mm. go, why, why can't BT just sweep it up if they or, but it does feel, I, again, you know, about a thousand percent more than I do about these things, but it just feels like Sky's either resting on its laurels a little bit, or it's being—it's just kind of yeah. being outthought and outmarketed a little bit as well. In that they seem to—it it doesn't feel. I—I I have I have conversations with far more friends about uh, who are disillusioned with Sky Sports than mm. I had five years ago, and I don't quite know why that is. Well. It's evidently because there's they've they don't have as much of a monopoly as they had. Well, I mean, this is it. The thing that blew it apart seven years ago was when BT acquired Premier League rights. Now, up until that point, the thinking was Sky should uh, and and the regulations dictated that Sky were never allowed all. I think at the time there were six packages of Premier League games, so there were six games shown every weekend. The thinking was Sky can't have all six because that means they have a monopoly and then they could jack the price up every year. Now, what happened was BT kind of came out of nowhere. You had years, if you remember, ESPN and Satanta and Premiership Plus and all these kind of people who were kind of trying, scratching scratching a living through uh, through having one package. You know, they had to have the, the 5.30 game on a, on a Saturday night. And when BT came along, they were like, no, no, we're going hard. We are going out, we're setting out to kill Sky by doing this. And the two were at loggerheads for a very, very long period of time. BT in the first year tried to buy, uh, tried to buy all six, and said to the Premier League, "We'll let go to the Competitions Commission, and and uh, and we'll have everything." And Sky had the the right to to come back with a counter offer, and they did. But it soon became obvious that BT were were serious about this. They then swallowed up the rugby rights. They swallowed up the tennis, you know, like women's tennis, MotoGP. Uh, you know, bits and pieces of boxing, all the other stuff that you see on BT Sport. But what it meant was for the first time, Sky did not have the monopoly on it. And ultimately, I think the loser was the punter, particularly if you're an all-round sports fan. You know, you like to watch different things because, you know, if you ultimately you've got to make that decision and what mean, what means most to you. And if, you know, the rugby's on BT but then the you know the cricket's on Sky, but oh on Sky got more football, but then the tennis is now on BT or whatever it might be. You then really it's the punter who gets ripped off because they have to have both. And that definitely changed things because up until that point, Sky were just completely were completely dominant. Something was either free to air or on Sky. So you could get by by dipping into Sky or getting the pub for the odd game or um, or you know, if you're a sports nut and you and you had the money, you'd you'd pay for a subscription. So that's the thing that I think really started it. Now, what we've ended up with now is BT, in my opinion, have made a move away from using live sports as a as a tools to sell broadband because simply I I don't think it worked, and the CEO who championed that has gone. Now, what you have had to kind of fill the void. I know BT still have you know plenty of plenty of sport on there and. They might well end up with the rugby rights again, but they are not going hell for They've still got the Champions League, for example, but they're not going hell for leather to try and defeat Sky as they were before. And the other added complication you've got in there is the likes of Amazon Prime. You know, people talk about Google or Netflix or Facebook coming in who've got 
way deeper pockets than even BT or Sky and then trying to blow them out of the water. So you've got a very, very different marketplace than you had before. The the governing bodies of, of respective sports, as you can imagine, are commercially driven and they want to sell the rights to they want to sell the rights for the for the most possible money. The thing that I always think we have to come back to though is if you you know and we and we saw this with cricket in 2005 is that when it went behind a paywall, its profile dipped and dipped and dipped. That definitely has resulted in in a participation problem within the sport and the ECB finds themselves, you know, having to come up with something like the hundred to try and reinvigorate uh, interest in the in the sport as a as an overall and as a means of making money and sustaining things. So that is a kind of potted history, I would say, in, as, as kind of what's happened in the last seven years or so. Now rugby finds itself at that point now. What you know, what are you going to do? Do you take the paycheck? Do you keep crown jewels like the Six Nations free to air? What you know? What are you, what are you thinking? And uh, it's a it's an interesting one. But what do you, do you think that uh, just thinking about the you know the BT say the the idea that BT is less committed to it because it it really is sport by method of marketing mm. the, the BT product effectively, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or and so if if let's say the incumbent CEO is not as convinced of that as a, as a way of, of making the most of BT's uh, marketing budget, what, um, you know, does it suggest that there's like a will, there has to be a will from like a human being at some point. It's not, it it is a business decision, but it's a business Mm. decision taken by somebody who's going to, who's going to stick by it. So is there any indication with Facebook or with YouTube or with any of the other players that aren't really there yet? And it, it, or will, or will it just be the fact that Amazon has, is currently, I mean, obviously being, being at the mercy of broadcasters or, 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 or properties or brands like Amazon is not a great thing if, if they're mm-hmm. going to just jack it in in three years' time or five years' time. But is that, does it really, you know, it's that level of human commitment to something is the thing that seems key to it. It's not just a business decision, is mm-hmm. it? Because the current, like, if that's, if that's the case, that BT has shifted its perspective a little bit, then it means that we're we're always in the thrall of these organisations, and it might be that that you know there isn't that sort of idea that the Premier League, as as always, frustrates me beyond belief, is that the idea that the value will keep on going up and up and up forever more, mm. and it will be, you know, it, it's just unsustainable. Well, yeah, and if you ever wanted a a, a firm example of that not being the case look no further than the premiership rugby broadcast deal which they sold the rights to bt having previously worked with sky for years and years and years they sold the rights to bt for a a massively inflated broadcast deal which comes to an end i I can't remember is this anyway they're coming into negotiation for that and again the problem that you're that you have if you're Premiership Rugby, is that, as I've said, BT don't have, they're, they're not going to pay any, they're certainly not going to increase what they spent on 
uh, on those on those uh, on that rights deal because they're in a different place right now. Sky apparently still have the raging hump about losing it in the first place, and so you know, and not um, would probably entertain it at a cut price, but are certainly not in the in the market to go and blow BT out of the water for it, and that is that is the, the example of thinking that oh well this it will get this one in and, and then we're going to grow it to come back to the thing you said about it you being at the mercy of an individual as well as a corporation well you are because a lot of the time these decisions are you know will be made these huge money decisions will be made by the ceo and the ceo of uh you know of, of premiership rugby is probably there thinking let's get this let's get this deal done because i don't know where i'm going to be in five years time get yeah. the deal done stick on the cv uh, you know, um, record broadcast deal and sold, you know, sold it for, I can't remember what the exact figure is, um, but yeah. And likewise, the same for the, for the broadcaster. So the same, same might go for whoever made the deal, the individual who took the, took the responsibility for doing the BT deal from BT's point of view. It's the same with Amazon. Of course, they're, they're at the, these are, these are fluctuating, you know, yeah. I mean, I've yeah. I've I've always thought this with the with the Pro Twelve, then fourteen, then whatever it might be, sixteen next year. I've always thought, well, you know, how motivated, and I I do not know the guy, so this is pure speculation as a fan rather than anything else. But how motivated is Martin and I to build a long term sustainable league, and how much is he driven by the fact that he is a, a businessman and wants to show growth, 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 growth? And if you've grown, let's face it. A, you know a tin pot league and you constantly show the revenue coming in and coming in and coming in and you exit at the right time and you get yourself a nice cushy job at uh at um i don't know the the lawn tennis association well then you've done your bit you know that's it whether the pro the pro 16 becomes the pro 28 or it becomes (laughs) or or it becomes the welsh premiership it's it's kind of no concern of yours again i'd like to say that's that is a hypothetical scenario but i always think in that mindset because ultimately these companies are run by people who are going to be motivated by by growing the sport that's what we're always said it's you know it's, it's all about growth but you're right growth and sustainable growth are two very very different things and it's weird, isn't it? Because then you turn around and go, oh, and, you know, Welsh Rugby's trapped in this kind of paralysed by two, all the rugby clubs having a vote and da-da-da-da-da-da, all this kind of stuff. Mm. But actually, the fundamental truth is it's a bit, it's a more, if it's if it's led properly and if it's managed properly, it, it's a more equitable way of, of actually progressing, of show, demonstrating the interests of the, the game across, across all, uh, all facets of it. In theory, yeah. right? In theory. So it's it's like that. It's a communism capitalism argument, isn't it? In a way, it's it's it's. Uh, but I, yeah, I I, I just think we are a, we are hostages to the whims of individual deal makers mm. to to the to the point of view where the game, you know, any sport has to has to have a very strong. Uh, administrative kind of core to it and th- at the moment we seem to be we, we just it doesn't seem to be the case I don't know who who feels like they own the the game at the moment and and that's the that's the thing is that's the thing you can control is you can control people who are in charge of making your decisions and that's the bit that you you know like you say you to a certain degree 
you are always going to be held hostage by um, by your broadcasters because they're the ones who pay the big money for it. And there's no point. There's no point really if a game like rugby thinking that they can go it alone and just do it off their own back. I, I just don't think they could. I don't think you could just have a, a rugby sus- subscription service that you sell. I think you need the the marketing clout that a big broadcaster brings with it. But what you can do is you can have someone there who is making the right decisions based on the, you know, is is building relationships with not just one broadcaster, but with a number of them. So you are getting the best possible deal for the long term rather than just the short term. But you know, that's a that's another matter entirely, you know, as to whether as to whether rugby from the top down is being run by the right people, because you know, I don't think we've seen a great deal of evidence of that in recent years. God help us if we have to invent a new game. We can't even bloody do this one properly with scrums and everything else. <laughs> Suddenly go, okay, we need to invent a new short form version in order to attract new people. I mean, that's the, the cricket thing. I mean, the hundred seems to be, I, I just get a, a general listening to test match special. I get a general sneery vibe developing about the hundred almost like it's, it's like a, it's like, it's going to be the, the format that they locked up in a cupboard and or, or, or locked in the attic and forgot that they actually gave birth to it at, at some point. I'm not sure whether that obviously that's heavily COVID related, but God help us if I mean we've got to just sort out the again sort out rugby in you know as it is now and do some deals that you feel are going to be good for the game and not for your own career CV. Oh my well, God, do I sound like a highly principled, naive idiot of age 54 or what? Yeah, well, that, uh, yeah, that, that comes across loud and clear. And we're going to carry on in that vein. And we're also, <laughs> also going to look at uh, a couple of other things. For once on this podcast, I want to talk about Owen Farrell and Dylan Hartley, which is not something I've said a number of times. And uh, we're going to do that. And of course, while I'm in a ranty mood, we're going to talk about the the format for the Heineken Cup next year, which uh, has had me tickled. But all of that is coming up in the second half of the show. And first, this very, very quick break. just chatting there yesterday before the break and you were you kind of used the analogy and the, the parallels with between cricket and rugby and the short form of the game and t20 and the hundred and everything else that's going on with cricket and it's a really interesting one that because without getting too much into into the kind of the details of the the cricket side of things this is like the, the success of t20 cricket has just become lazy shorthand for other sports of going we need a we need a shorter form of the game. Uh, attention spans are dwindling. We need a shorter form of the game. That's that's all we need. And that thing kind of just does make me laugh a little bit because yes, I've got, right, you know, Test match cricket is a is an acquired taste. You know, I became much more interested in it when I was twelve than when I was six. And you know, you did, and and that was mainly because of the fact that it was like you know, it was just on in the summer. That was it. You know, there was there was very little other sport to watch. So so that's how it happened. But the the fact that T20 has worked is kind of unique to cricket. Not unique, but it, it is. 
a result of cricket's circumstances. It has opened it up to a broader audience because it's shorter, but that doesn't just automatically mean that every sport should get shorter in order to attract more, uh, in order to attract more fans. You know, football doesn't need, uh, you know, doesn't need to go to 20 minute halves in order to attract the next generation of fans. You know, if that was the case, rugby sevens would have been way more popular than 15 by now. And, you know, there, there's all, I think tennis has tried some kind of bullshit um, short form of the game. You well, know. The, I used to be, I used to be a golf journalist for a while for my sins and uh, uh, nothing to do with my golf game, I hasten to add. And um, it was, they, they were always talking about doing sort of six hole I think it exists, yeah, and, golf sixes. You know, or, yeah. yeah, yeah, and it, and it, and even changing, putting two flags on a green, and all these kind of things, and it's just, it just, it's just, it just doesn't work. Nobody's, no. nobody's, nobody's tuned into it. I mean, golf, obviously, notoriously conservative in many ways, but also desperately trying to hunt for the same audience that rugby, football, cricket, and every other sports after. Uh, they just want they want numbers they want eyes uh, and but it's never been it's ludicrous uh and it's never going to happen in rugby without a doubt but the, obviously there are still things that that need to be done in order to 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 speed up rugby i mean uh, you know nothing but that's it though isn't it that's the that's the point is it's and actually it brings us full circle back to the cricket yeah, because yeah and it, it yeah, sorry, sorry. Come the, on, the, the hundreds, you know, like like you said there, I there is a bit of a sneery attitude towards it, and I've got to say, uh, I I I think the it, for the sake of cricket, it needs to work, so I hope it does. But it was drawn up, you know, out of a, a marketing scenario, and I don't think a particularly good one. The problem that they're trying to solve is that really they want a, a version of cricket that is down to two and a half hours, and that's fine because you know that works for broadcasters i think it'll work for fans too and it kind of hits that that golden sweet spot of being able to put something on on a weeknight or put it on at you know 5 p.m before strictly come dancing or whatever it is and i I completely get that and so that works but there's no reason why they couldn't have done that with t20 you just need you just need to speed the game up and that is the same thing that rugby needs to do is it needs to look at the problems that it has how to and again, I, you know, I think actually, to be fair, they are looking at, at ways of, yeah. of improving this, and you've seen some of it in the uh, in the Super Rugby, um, in the way that some of the some of the refereeing has taken place, and some of these new law variations that have been spoken about. So that that's the thing that you have to get right is get your fundamental thing right, rather than trying to cook up some harebrained scheme of a game that you know that that you just need something incredibly sh- incredibly short just to to deal with. Um, attention spans you just need to to understand how to um how to market the game as best as possible and how to make the game itself uh, as best um as best as possible start with the the core game that you've got rather than trying to concoct something out of thin air just on a you know a gimmick basis and it it, it leads into what you, we were you know also the this thing that we're talking about you know Dylan Hartley doing his um, round of interviews this week is the idea that you just have to play more rugby, mm. you know, uh, more often, and and the, the idea that that's uns- that's just as unsustainable as 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 short <laughs> the, the, a, any kind of ludicrous notion that you can shorten the format of the game or anything like that. 
Yeah, it is. And actually, again, that leads us really quite nicely onto Dylan Hartley, who, as you say there, has been doing the rounds this uh, this week, promoting his book in possibly the most uh, self-deprecating, humble manner imaginable. He kind of almost seems a bit guilty talking about the book when it, in any of the interviews I've heard. But he raises some really interesting points in there, none more so than the fact that uh, I think he referred to players as crash test dummies. And with the sport still being so the professional version of the sport still being so young, these players are or have been guinea pigs in the, you know, in the past 10 or 15 years. And the injuries are, you know, there is going to be a long-term impact to these injuries rather than just play, you know, we've, we've spoken to players who retired early and obviously we spoke to Sam Walton, we spoke to, to, we spoke to Ben John who suffered a number of concussions and had to retire, but there's going to be a long-term impact of this as well, just because the game is so, so physical and they're being asked to play more and more. And that for me is a much bigger problem than, than the, the things we were just talking about there as to how you make the game more entertaining. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, but I do think that first and foremost, you have to look after the players who are putting their body on the line for you. Well, that, that, that sentence that, um, Don McRae picked out in the, his Guardian article, which was a uh, rugby is great for the soul, but terrible f- for the body, which mm-hmm. is a line out of Hartley's book. It, 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 it says it all really, because if you don't, if rugby loses, if there's a kind of compromise in terms of uh, being great for the soul, because, because you're just putting the players through too much, you, you ruin this, you ruin the reason why rugby is a great, sport in the first place so it's not just that it's not just that they're obviously it's about individual people being you know having lifelong injuries but at the same time it's also about destroying the the soul of the game by by just asking people to do things that they know it's you know it's it's uh we're talking rollerball territory aren't we you know where it's like to the death and I, I I've I've known a player who's signed an international contract in the past knowing full well that they had a serious uh, serious problem with then with a um, with an injury that they didn't want to have an MRI scan on because they knew that they it meant that they wouldn't get a, a contract for a year and that decision was made because they love the game, but mm. but also for for financial security. And you just kind of go, you've got to take that out, that decision out of the hands of the players, really. Yeah, you absolutely do. And I mean, I, I mean, that's the thing is it's it's bad enough in any in any sport, but I just think rugby more than more than most the the simple what's the word I'm looking at, the simple physics of the game and the size of the players now, it's uh, it, it's a really bad thing to do with your body, to play rugby. To play professional rugby, you are putting, and not even just professional rugby, because obviously this does trickle down into the into the grassroots game now. You know, I I haven't played rugby for a very long time, but I, I used to quite enjoy the fact that I was a relatively big bloke and I could just sling on a jersey every now and again and, and and it'd be all right unless you get you know at any level unless you're going to the gym three times a week you're not really going to cope with a with a game of grassroots rugby anymore and I'm not saying that you know obviously the the professionalism that goes with that but you have got to take away a degree of the the physical risk 
and you know if you're looking at experimental law variations then perhaps you know the obviously we've looked at the tackle area and, and actually i do think things have got better in the last two and a half years around that the breakdown's the next one and i hope that these that these laws uh do make a difference in terms of clearing out and things like that but i don't know i think it just has to be it has to be so high up on the on the priorities list rather there than was a there was after after um uh dylan hartley was interviewed on radio five and he was uh interviewed by helen skelton who's married to uh, a player from leeds rhinos and she mm. said to him she said uh, when my kids pick up a rugby ball i just go no hot 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 hurt hurt hurty hurty and and puts a golf club in their hands instead and uh, that's she just is desperately you know her kids are tiny but she des she desperately wants them not to pick up a rugby ball yeah and you know i you know it's a it's a sad state of affairs but you you can kind of see why and you know as much as we were talking before the break about the need to drive to drive money and being at the mercy of uh, of broadcasters well that again is where if you are a a serious administrator you are doing both uh, both duties of looking after your players and also commanding the best possible uh, broadcast deal. You know, you can't you can't simply sell the soul of the game because once you've done it, there's no turning back. And that applies to that applies to player welfare. It applies to the amount of games you have to play. It applies to the the broadcast deal that you do. All of these things. You know, yes, you have to make a business decision around it, but. You've also just got to think, you know, why did we why did we get involved with this sport in the first place? And the minute it becomes it becomes too dangerous for you to want to send your kids to go and play, well then you've got to you've got to say that there's a that there's a serious problem. Yeah. I, I was watching um obviously we've all watched a lot of those reruns of Wales games. Mm. Uh and th there are, there's a point when it is just I've watched it with my 20-year-old son where he's going, this is just rubbish, Dad. Mm. And then there's a point at which you kind of almost, there's a sweet spot sometime at the, you know, I don't know when, <laughs> I don't know when you can say whether it's... It's the early noughties, I reckon, isn't it? It is the early noughties, almost like the perfect game, but obviously, you know, there's scrums are a little bit, but there is a, there is a point of where you can go back to learn what, when the game flows, when you can see a high skill level, where players demonstrate unbelievable amounts of skill and strength, and and you also get a, a, an ebb and flow from the game. And I, I, even I, I I've been quite optimistic after watching a few weeks of um, English rugby uh, to see they they've hit the ground running quicker than. Well, I mean, to be fair to the Welsh regions, they've only had two games to do it. But they, they, there is something. They're nearly there. They're not. It's not far off. Uh, it was. It's better than it was two years ago, without mm. a shadow of a doubt. It's less drab. The box kicking is not as kind of like relentlessly tedious. It's not, and even the kind of um, stick it up your jumper, pressurize, pressurize, Exeter kind of way of playing is, is not quite as humdrum as it was, you know, um, a couple of seasons ago. And obviously, they can call upon 
a, a very, very wide player base and a very exciting player base as well. So they've got better quality players to call on. But they, they, uh, have, to, they have to at the moment because they're playing two games a week, which is, you know, which is yeah. madness. And this, this, brings yeah. us, this brings us back to the point of being held, you know, held uh, at gunpoint to a, to a broadcaster. Well, the reality is, is BT want their, they want their panda flesh when it comes to the number of games that they've, they've been promised. And the position that Premiership Rugby find themselves in is that they need to do everything they can because probably they're desperate to, to get BT to sign a renewal. Yeah. Yeah, and it, but it, it you know well, it's uh yeah it's it, it, certainly the get the games of just purely from a, 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 a an armchair perspective the 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 it seems there's a more entertaining more flow to the game than I expected after they came back from lockdown I have to say, um, but uh, yeah one of the obviously moving swiftly along to. Uh, <laughs> To, to to one probably the most uh, telling uh, telling sort of uh, news story from the from the from the Saracens game yesterday. Well, something that straddles entertainment, player welfare, um, <laughs> broadcasting, and journalism all rolled into one is uh, Owen Farrell's uh, Owen Farrell's horror tackle. And it's my turn to take a step back now because I would like very much to hear your rant if it's going to be a rant, Justin. Yeah, I mean, obviously, shock and tackle, you know, as soon as he even, before he even hit the ground, he's got his hands up, he's realised he's done something terrible there and it's been a long time coming and, you know, you see social media sort of saying, you know, Farrell's got away with so many of these in the past and he's banged to rights and the only, I think, the only outlier I can spot who really, who's come out, Clive Woodward to which is almost characteristic really to say should be they should throw the book at him um, I, I I found it really interesting in that it was almost like a funereal tone when they were discussing it on BT Sport I found that really I don't know I found it really uncomfortable I felt I felt not for the first time that the sort of the national interest was being served by almost mm. kind of wringing their hands with with a kind of, well, yeah, it's a terrible shame. It's like there was, you know, I really didn't see the kind of level of crit- criticism or or just or or, or really coming going. It, it there it's it's much as I wouldn't want to see a Twitter storm of kind of you know vitriol against Owen Farrell just because it's Owen Farrell. It was it it was almost a, a, almost apologetic. It was like our national captain has just done something. It would be the equivalent of um, Harry Kane, go, not quite Harry Kane, going into the stands at Crystal Palace and karate kicking somebody. But you know, in terms of like, it it, it just felt like I don't know. It just felt really odd that people were almost apologize not not apologizing for him but they were definitely not if that had been another 10 or another 12 or another 13 i'm not i i think they would have really gone after the player for being totally irresponsible particularly somebody with a with a track record for doing that and i thought it was i thought i thought it was shoddy really shoddy 
It's, that's very interesting because it's a, yeah, like you say, he's the, you know, he's, he's the England captain and taking biases, if I can, out of, out of the equation, I'd say, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty big, a pretty big fan of him as a player. I think he's a, you know, I think he's a, a very good controlling 10. He can do the same role at, at 12. He's a big game player. You know, I, I've got a lot, a lot of good things to say about him as a as a player but you're right the the proven time and time again there's been a number of reckless challenges that there has to become a a proper amount of accountability for and I'm not saying throw the book at him but what I am saying is that it it really shouldn't have come to to a tackle as bad as this in order for there to be some some proper punishment dished out for a player who's who's done it consistently I think you just have to, you have to genuinely condemn the tackle. You don't have Mm. to say Owen Farrell is a bad person, but you have to say that is a, this, this, that a game, uh, the game does not want to see a tackle like that. That is a terrible thing to do. And it doesn't mean that Owen Farrell's an awful, an an awful human being, but you have to, you have to call it what, for what it is. And I, it seems completely unfair to, not call it and I, I maybe I've read the wrong articles maybe I've maybe I've just got that innate sense of that there was a there was a that there there was a degree of restraint about the criticism of it maybe I've got my maybe my perspective's wrong but that's what it felt like to me and it and I just it's not good broadcasting to be to 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 say that to, to kind of hold back a little bit that in that case and if it had been any other player um there wouldn't have been that that they wouldn't have held back here's one for you is that because for the past 15 years across virtually all sports we have slipped into having x pros on the on the sofa and as a result, you don't get any actual real objectivity. Oh, yeah, you do. Yeah, that's, that's a sweeping statement. But it is harder for a an ex-pro to criticise someone that they're likely to mingle in the same circles with than it is for a journalist or someone of that ilk to, who's paid to be objective about it and and point out the facts in a balanced way, but ultimately isn't paid, you know, or isn't isn't uh, you know isn't Owen Farrell's mate. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I I've, I found there was a lot of interesting stuff going on. I think the you know the BBC does really well with their uh, with their pod that they do with Danny Kerr and um, Ugo and Chris Sashton. That that there are times when they do call it, and they they're not afraid to ask the awkward questions. And the, the BBC isn't obviously renowned for that these days, but they they're not scared of of um, of doing that. But I just thought. Uh, it, m- m- perhaps, perhaps it's a BT thing. Um, perhaps they, perhaps they don't see themselves as as uh, objective observers uh, because they see themselves as a as as um, cheerleaders, for, cheerleaders for England uh, and cheerleaders for the game. Uh, I, yeah, but it didn't. I don't know. It it it. it I just thought it was, it just didn't, you know, I wasn't looking for a reason to go after Hartley about it. Um, Hartley, sorry, Farrell. Wow. 
I wasn't looking for a reason to go after him for it because it was, it, you know, it was, it was one of those moments where you kind of went, oh, what have you done? Oh God. And he knew he'd done something and he, you know, it was, it was even the opposition didn't read, you know, it didn't sort of erupt into a massive, uh, you know, handbags and people pushing themselves around. It was more actually kind of fear for the player who got hit, but it, it just felt, it just it feels to me like you can't just I keep on saying this I keep on repeating myself but it just felt really uncomfortable and really like like bad shoddy broadcasting yeah well it's um I don't know it, I, as I say I haven't seen I haven't seen the uh the punditry in question but it's something that we visit, we visited on one of our very very early pods was just how it can be very difficult for ex-players to uh, you know, in some cases, current players to be genuinely critical of their peers, and I, and I understand that. But that's where they're being paid to be to be pundits rather than paid there to be players. You know, if you want genuine insight, which is the whole rationale behind getting a uh, getting a, a current or an ex player on there, then that has to work both ways. And it, it, it is something that annoys me, and you know, I've seen it across you know at the height of match of the day's cronyism when you know you just had you had Alan Shearer there because well he's he's Alan Shearer and you know he doesn't need, he doesn't need to actually say anything or criticize players or even offer any kind of insight you just sit there and say exactly what's happening and that to me is you know is, is where you lose you lose what a pundit is supposed to do and again coming back to our conversation about attention spans being shorter I'm not saying that you need to whip up the controversy which obviously is the is, is what gives you that bit of social media gold uh but i just think that that that, that role of a pundit is there to to look at things objectively be critical when it's it's time to be critical and uh and yeah regard regardless of your relationship with um with the players in question and i i actually really enjoy bt's coverage as well i think they they do they do a good job generally speaking so it was it was just one of those mm. but i it's not they're not alone uh, i just feel the tone of um, even the tone of uh, of the reporting on on the bbc sports radio channels is is the same it's it's almost like well it, it a terrible mistake happened mm. it's like no <laughs> you know uh, a terrible thing happened, and he'll get punished for it. But it was a it was a violent act. It mm. was, and um, and it, it wasn't something that you kind of go well just because he was just because he was immediately sorry that it was okay. And that, yeah. you know that a sense of regret. And you know, it's not how many rugby players, you know, how many rugby players take people out, out in the air. You know, George North was instantly realised that he was. You know, but he, he he did something really dumb. It wasn't something that where he was actually looking to take somebody's the top of somebody's head off. Mm. Um, and you know, I don't know. It, it, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it doesn't sit easy with me, as you can tell. I can tell. Well, let's uh, let's finish then on this uh, this rather cheery note. Have you seen the format for next season's Heineken Cup? Yes. And I, I kind of understand it now, I think, but it just means that we're just going to, as it stands, we'll just have two teams in it, won't we? Um, it, it, I, but I, 
I couldn't, I didn't understand it. I watched the video twice. Yeah, that was like, it just kept on. That was like a parody video, wasn't it? It was, I kind of kept expecting Alan Partridge to pop up with his wheel of World Cup. Yeah, it just was like loads of blue things flying around for a bit. Um, And then I watched it again and I still just, the second time around, I was, I just thought, oh, oh well, we'll just see how it goes. What's what's your, slightly more objective and um, educated view of it i don't think i can offer an objective and educated view on this one actually i um i've been moaning about this for the last couple of days and i took to twitter this afternoon and said uh, if you're still wondering how next season's heineken cup will work my understanding is teams are split into two pools and leinster win it and that is about that's about as much as i'm expecting because i still i still cannot fathom it i think i think so of the of the um is it tw- yeah 24 teams who enter it's broken down into two pools and the top four from each pool go through but you don't play every team in the pool you play you play four games against teams who are in a different tier of that to you yeah. so I, but I mean, so you play that, yeah. I mean, basically, yeah. The best teams play the were tier one versus tier four mm-hmm. was when my I lost. That was when my heart that. sank, and I just thought oh, we haven't got a chance. <laughs> I thought, well, yeah, but also as well the I, to bring it back to how do you get people interested in the game? I mean, I try and explain this to a to a newcomer to rugby. It's just it's so absurdly complicated. I've just about got my head around it now, but I've I've always thought the Heineken Cup actually was, even in its glory days, it suffered from the fact that it only had six pools because it's just not straightforward enough. You go, all right, top teams go through and then there's two runner-up spots and that's determined on points difference or bonus points or whatever it was. And that, you know, it kind of made for it. It was kind of exciting on the last, um, on the last round of pool stages when they had the live you know the live league table going up and down but it was just it was just too complicated i i just think you and as i've said before there's too many dead rubbers in the, in that tournament to me and oh yeah two-legged quarterfinals as well is something that we haven't mentioned mm. um i just think now would have been a good opportunity to have i don't know if i if you're looking for a solution i'd have probably gone pools of three and then yeah you play um yeah, you just you play the teams in your pools, and the top team, the top team go through, and it's as simple as that. As as soon as you start not playing teams in your in your pool, you're doomed, aren't you? You know, this is my group. Oh, I'm not playing. Oh, it's like I've, I've never like I've never liked a, a conference system. It, I, I don't like it in in the uh, the Pro Fourteen. No, I hate it. I don't like it when it was in the the Anglo Welsh Cup. It just, it, you know, it's just just make things straightforward. It should be the teams you play. It's a mini league, and if you're in the qualifying positions, you're in and you progress to the next round. It's uh, yeah. What they it, should do is they should bring some South African teams in to make it more interesting. Do you reckon? But you know what? I actually think that would make more sense if you're playing in a league. How the Dragons can be playing in the Champions Cup next season is beyond me. And and again, you think back to that. Why are they playing there? Because whichever South African side it was who finished above us, I'm guessing the Cheetahs. I don't know. Uh, I think it is, yeah, because the Kings didn't beat anyone. But So the Cheetahs are in our conference and they finished above us. But 
because they can't qualify for Europe, the Dragons get in there. That sums up the absurdity of the Pro 14 and the European rugby there in a nutshell. These are the kind of problems you need to go out and solve if you're a if you're a senior rugby administrator. But the Dragons are going for glory, Jed. It's going to be, you know, Don't get me wrong. Be a, it's going to be a Cinderella story. They're going to go and beat the, all the teams that are three tiers above them. <laughs> yes, whoever they may be. Um, and of course, there's the, the added caveat I forgot to mention there that you do not play the team in, the, in that tier who is from your league. Yeah. Which, yeah. again, is just like... You know, who cares if, if we're beaten by Leinster or we're beaten by, uh, I don't know, someone good from England who's that Exeter. It doesn't matter which, you know, which side it is. It's just like, I don't know, just for the sake of ease, make this thing accessible to people who, you know, I know you wouldn't necessarily believe it listening to this this episode of the podcast, but I do love rugby. And if I'm finding it this hard to get excited by it because of how stupidly complicated the um the qualifications are what chance does the casual rugby fan have you know it's just it's just absurdly i i i well, you just watch all you do is just watch the game and go oh that was the game of rugby then and mm-hmm. that's that's kind of almost that's that's why the local derby still means something to because they got nobody's got any interest in whether they're fourth sixth eighth twelfth 27th whatever it just comes down to it's a game of rugby because people can't invest that much interest in 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 anything like conferences and complicated structures but you you should you should do a a a video to explain how you you would do it jed and and get like kind of you know get somebody on an animation tip that you know that that can kind of fly some blue blue things around uh you know you know, you could do it. You could do that sort of alter- Jed's alternative, uh, you know, alternative cup structure. I'm sure at what, yeah, I'm sure at one point when, um, uh, yeah, I'm sure at one point when I'm not, uh, yeah, not sleeping at night, I, I might map out a. Uh, I I used to get my um I used to get my dog to pick um like my the presentation groups for my students to um do their seminars and and do their presentations and stuff i used to just put a lump of cheese in um in on a piece of paper and whichever bit of cheese she went for first that would so that that, that's a really good it's better it's better than the fa cup draw you know it's like cheese and a small dog um, and then you let you what you do is you record it, and then you put it on the internet, and then everybody finds that hugely amusing and funny, and then uh, everybody goes home happy. So you know maybe they should think about something like that. Live animals say, eating cheese. I would say that live animals eating cheese is a considerable upgrade from the uh, from the situation that we're faced with, and it feels Seems like, like it. it feels like yeah. the perf- it feels like the perfect point to end this week's podcast. Uh, yes, and thank you for that, and indeed for all your contributions uh, to this week's episode. Thoroughly enjoyed that, and uh, yeah, let us know your thoughts as well. Get in touch with us on Twitter at Attacking Scrum. You can do the same on Facebook and Instagram if you prefer. And if you've enjoyed the show, then do leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, we'll be back to talk rugby. God knows what next week's got in store, but uh, I'm sure there'll be uh, a mixture of uh, administrative blunders and hopefully some good performances from uh, from some Welsh players 
and uh, we do have some rugby in the not too distant future to preview as uh, the the Heineken Challenge Cup is it the Heineken Challenge Cup? I don't know. Let's go. Let's go back to calling it the Parker Pen. Parker Pen, all over uh, the the Parker Pen quarterfinals do feature two Welsh sides in uh, in whatever that is a fortnight's time. So uh, yes, we've got that to look forward to. Uh, but yeah, we'll be back to chat rugby with you very very soon. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Everyone thinks I had a storybook career, that I just sprang into Disney Channel stardom overnight, made millions, and lived happily ever after. Spoiler alert, I didn't. There were countless failures along the way, and there still are. How I deal with that struggle and how I pivot when failure creeps in is what allows me to keep going, keep learning, and keep striving for balance. The Vulnerable Podcast is an invitation to hang out every week with me, Christy Carlson Romano, as I invite friends, celebrities, and experts for in-depth conversations discussing the good, the complicated, the beauty of being human, and what it means to be vulnerable. Join me every Tuesday as we navigate the ups and downs of my guests' paths to success. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.